Philippians chapter number 4. I'll go ahead and lay out all my cards on the table this morning. I generally send out an outline, particularly for the opportunity of family discipleship and preparing our hearts for the message. And the outline that I sent you is the same, but today we'll make it through point number one. Um, just as time went on, the sermon evolved. And you will get a two-part sermon series um, this morning. I had sent out um, three points. This morning we're going to look at Paul's attitude towards the church there at Philippi, Paul's admonition to Euodia and Syntyche, and then thirdly, Paul's um, address or his appeal um, to the church there um, at Philippi, the congregation, um, more broadly. Uh, this morning we will primarily take up um, number one. I say that so you don't worry that after 50 minutes that I'm concluding with number one. Um, I promise you we will finish, and we will pick it up um, next week. Um, so let us begin. Um, if you will, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Um, read our text, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. And we'll take our reading this morning, where we left off last week, in chapter 4 and verse number 1 of Paul's letter to Philippi. And then, so in... Chapter 4 and verse number 1, Paul writes these words according to the Spirit. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Let us pray. Father, we come to you once again simply to thank you. Father, we thank you that you are high and holy and seated upon the throne in the heavens. Father, we are so thankful that your Son is seated at the right hand of God the Father and that when he ascended, Father, according to Acts 2, I mean, he took his position there. The Spirit of God came in full measure to all those who are in Christ. Father, we recognize that that's the reason, in so many ways, theologically and practically, and that we are here today. Father, that we gather together for that reason and that reason alone. Father, your Son is worthy of the honor and glory that is due his name this morning. So we pray in some measure that we would give it in a way that is um, honoring to Christ. Father, we know that the only way to do that is to do it in the power of Christ. And so go with this now. Father, help us all, as individuals, as families, and as little ones, Father, to stay our minds upon the Word for just the next hour, and that you might use it in our lives um, to exalt our hearts, Father, to transform us by the renewing of our minds, and that you might accomplish a mighty work, Father, as we behold the wondrous mysteries um, that are contained within this book. Um, not mysteries, Father, that you, um, to, to kind of provoke our curiosity, but Father, the mysteries that you might reveal to us, the great truths contained within these pages, Father, written in eternity and preserved for us today. What a glorious treasure we have within the Word, and more than that, what a glorious treasure we have in Christ. So, Father, help us to, to uh, 
um, seek out that treasure this morning, Father. And the wisdom of God, the revelation of God, the knowledge of God, um, as if it were silver or gold this morning. Father, may He be our pursuit. And as a result of it, Father, may we be more like Him, each and every one of us. And Father, if someone here that doesn't know Christ, we pray that in the moment, Father, that during this sermon, whether today or years to come, that you would use it, Father, to bring them to the end of themselves. You would use it as a means of grace to supply, Father, um, all that is necessary for salvation and for our sanctification. And Father, we trust you with this because we cannot accomplish it in our own selves with our own strength. So, Father, we lean on you now in the next hour. Um, help us to be faithful and do what you do, Father, in such a way that is honoring and glorifying to your name and you receive it all in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for standing. If you were here with us last week, you would have noted that as we trekked through the book of Philippians, we ended there in Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 1. We noted primarily that exhortation in chapter 4 and verse number 1 from Paul to Stand firm. That's what he says in chapter 4 and verse number 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. And that call came in a heartfelt plea to the church at Philippi not to go the way of the sensualists, not to go the way of the antinomians. Boys and girls, remember that that means the lawless ones. And no doubt Paul had seen many go that way bringing an attack upon the gospel itself, that these lawless Christians were really no Christians at all. In a very real way, their lives denied the truth contained within the gospel. So we looked at that. But not only was it an offense to the gospel, but Paul was personally affected in the depths of his inner man in such a way that it expressed itself outwardly by the mark of tears. Sorrow, um had encumbered him. And one might be just in right thinking, why? Why was Paul so rocked at his core? Why was he so sorrowful? He doesn't seem to be affected necessarily by unbelief with others. So what makes it that different now? Because these people were not merely unbelieving pagans, atheists spouting out hatred for the church. These were seemingly professing believers within, at least at one time, local churches that Paul was aware of. He could put a face with the false doctrine and the sinful lifestyle. That there was a time when Paul would have identified with them as one in Christ. He would have said they are giving every indication that they are a part of Christ's body. If you want to look at Christ's bride, there they are. And then more personally, he would have looked and he would have said, these are my brothers, or these are my sisters. That Paul, we see somewhat of a, not only a doctrine or a theological perspective as he defends the gospel, but we too see the experiential, the practical side of the apostle. That he's living out day-to-day Christianity. And he's thinking one day they're with us, and then the next day they're not. They've totally abandoned Christ altogether. But they've abandoned Him not, only, not, not in, merely in a word, because they didn't, but they abandoned Him indeed. And in Paul's mind, uh, this was enough 
for them to lose the designation Christian from his perspective. So with tears, Paul mourns the apostasy of former brothers. Brothers in Christ. And with those tears still upon his face, he issues a charge to the dear church at Philippi to stand fast. It would be a means of keeping them and protecting them from that same drift. Paul recognized that as far as he concerned, um, everyone is, or it's, it's, it's a possibility for any of us. Thus he commands them to firm up their footing, to dig in their heels to establish themselves in a fixed position such that they would not and could not be moved. Why? Because apostasy, no, apostasy is a real danger within every local church. If it was a reality in those churches, under apostolic authority and oversight, possibly some of the most spiritual men uh, that we could see even up to this day who had walked with Christ, had seen Christ, had uh, understood under His tutelage so much, so much about Christ and the apostles um, who would have been, uh, had somewhat of a, a, an insight to the Spirit uh, that, that even us, that, that today we don't. Then if it would happen in their day, how much more are our churches privy to apostasy today? But at the same time, I want to begin this morning by taking note of the rest of the verse. There was an inclination in my own heart and preparation to kind of gloss over that portion. Um, but I, I truly believe that it gives us some tre- tremendous insight into the apostles' mind for the rest of the, for the, at least the next two verses. You know, we could rapidly move on, and that was kind of what I had planned, verses 2 and 3, and declare some truth concerning the need for unity within the church. But I really think, after laboring in verse number 1, that to skip over or gloss over verse 1 is to miss some of the fundamental reality concerning Paul's exhortation to unity. You see, Paul recognizes an issue, as we see articulated in verses 2 and 3, particularly between two ladies within the church, Euodia and Syntyche, there's probably a number of ways that he could have addressed it, and he could have addressed them, but he, but, but, but he does it in a particular way. He could have addressed it with somewhat of a, a, a righteous anger, where he flips the table of disunity among them, but he doesn't. He really couches it in different terms and a different demeanor. And not to say that neither one is, is right or wrong, but for whatever reason the apostle desires... Um, to issue this instruction in what we might say is some of the most affectionate terms and phrases in this entire book. So if the book of Philippians, as we've argued, is the most affectionate of his letters towards the church at Philippi, and he seems to have this unique relationship with the church at Philippi, um, chapter 4, verse number 1 is arguably um, one of the most affectionate verses in the most affectionate letter. And that Paul couches his exhortation in endearing terms that you'll find um, throughout the rest of the New Testament letters. But just there's a conglomerate of them here in this portion of Scripture. And what I hope that you'll see this morning at the out front and throughout the sermon in some capacity is that in this verse you find the foundation in some capacity of his call to unity. Maybe indirectly, but it's there. That the call to unity really lies 
in Paul's understanding of the church and Paul's perspective of the New Testament church. It lies in what he believes the church is. And thus he's compelled to call them. He's compelled to issue the charge. He's compelled to battle disunity. He's compelled in and of himself not to let... um, Not to let little things lie, but to address them head on. Why? Because of the nature of the church, what Christ accomplished in it through the gospel and experientially and practically what they mean to him. And if this perspective is correct, if Paul's perspective is correct, then disunity is a major offense to the gospel and must be corrected. And it must be corrected by the church. Not corrected or pursued in kind of a do it in your own strength, um, rely upon worldly methods, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, nothing's going to happen in this church on my watch. Nothing like that. But as we yield ourselves by the power of the Spirit to gospel truth, we are empowered and affected in our inner men and inner women, compelled because of that gospel truth, because of what the church is, because of what we are, because of our relationship one to another, because of our, our, our innate commitments to one another by being one in Christ. This unity should be within our midst a grievous reality. And it will be again. It will be a reality. I think if, if one, and this is kind of at the end, but I'll go ahead and throw it out there now in parts of application. Um, as I mentioned earlier with apostasy, if apostasy could happen um, among, among, un, among and under apostolic authority and oversight, how much more can apostasy happen in our church today? And at the same time, um, if disunity was an issue with, under apostolic authority, how much more is it a possibility within our church? That this, that this text, if nothing else, should guard us against um, an over-romanticized view of the church. I think that sometimes people come to the church in a similar way that they come to marriage. Just with this overly romanticized fairy tale type of reality. And they find out as soon as the honeymoon is over, or not far thereafter, that it's not all glitz and glamour. That it is two sinful people living together. I've had people come to me a year later and say, I think I married the wrong person. <laughs> I said, Number one, I know you didn't. You know how? Because you married them. You know, In God's providence, He allowed that to happen. He permitted it to happen. And if the reason that you think that you married the wrong person is because now there's friction within the marriage and your fairy tale is ruined, then you don't really understand marriage at all. You came not to serve, but to be served. And that actually one of the purposes of marriage um, that God has given us is for the sanctification of one another. Ephesians chapter 5 is clear, men. Uh, that one of the reasons is, 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 is the same that, that, that Christ gives us one another. It's for discipleship. It's for sanctification, um, as well as in 1 Corinthians. And it's indicated that actually this friction among you is one of the reasons God brought you together, that it might sanctify you, show you your sin, and that you might grow in Christ together as iron sharpening iron. And the same thing happens within the local church. You know, people are looking for the perfect church. And then when some friction comes or conflict arises, it's as if they're surprised. Like you could actually get, you know, 100 to 150 people together 
um, and of every age, of every um, type and stripe, and, the, and that there would be no, no conflict. Like we are riddled with the fallenness of our bodies. And while, yes, we are in some sense perfect, and the Spirit lives inside us, and we are in these carcasses of flesh, and that our sin reigns in some capacity, and it is to die. And one of the means that God uses um, to kill it is one another. That actually, that's in part why you're here. That's one part why I'm here. That we might sharpen one another. That what I'm not going to do this morning is say that if disunity lies within the church or is to be defound within Christ's Bible, that we are in some sense inferior. This is a reality. But, but we should be prepared for it. We should be committed to rectifying it as those who have the gospel of reconciliation and the ministry of it. It should not thrive in the same capacity as it does in the world. And that we should pursue that reconciliation. And in doing so, it actually displays the glory of Christ to a lost and a dying world. And that, but, but when it's allowed to be maintained and persevere within a local New Testament church, undealt with, um, it's actually an offense to the nature of the gospel. And it destroys the witness of the gospel. That's something that we need to recognize. So the message this morning is a return to what we would say is a common theme in Paul's letter to Philippi, and that is unity. But at the same time, I want to begin the discussion with verse number one, um, and I've entitled it Paul's Attitude Towards Philippi. And I think we'll learn a lot from just gleaning from Paul's attitude towards Philippi. And then ask the question, is, should this be our attitude towards Christ Bible Church? Should this be our attitude towards one another, towards other churches, towards believers? And I think that it is, maybe not to the exact same degree, or maybe not to the exact same, with all the same details. Paul's calling is unique. Paul's ability is unique. Um, yet at the same time, in principle, I think that it should be um, the same. So number one, Paul's attitude towards Philippi. And I think that this is important. I think it's essential. I think that your understanding, your perspective, my understanding, my perspective, my attitude towards God's people um, will without a doubt affect and dictate our presence and our servants among them. What we think about as the nature of what's happening here and who we are um, all will affect um, how we respond, how we relate. And the, it will determine the commitment in our relationships, your commitment to one another or our lack thereof. That many today have an understanding of the church that allows them minimal participation, low-level commitment, scarce presence among God's people. That the church is viewed as a one-day consumer-driven event where I'm entertained, you're energized, with little to no accountability. But is this Paul's perspective an attitude towards the church, towards God's people. Paul doesn't just come out and again tell us in the text, but we can gather his perspective from the terms surrounding his exhortation to stand fast. And it's in a similar way that most strangers in public can conclude that Mandy is my wife. Not because I just come out and say, hey, here's my wife to everybody I meet in Walmart. Hey, listen, this is the lady of my dreams. <laughs> you know? But they can tell through the way that I address her, the interaction that we have, um, that, that this is my wife, that I am committed to her. 
Um, that our relationships, the actions, the way that we relate to one another actually dictates the nature of that relationship. Um, and that's true in so many relationships. So we can learn something about the Apostle Paul, what he believes about the church and his commitment to the church just by reading verse number number one. And I think in doing so, Paul will in some sense set the foundation for his call to unity. This is true. I have to go after Euodia. I have to go after Syntyche. If this is true, the gospel must be guarded and preserved. If this is true, then I must call upon the church to stand in the gap for these ladies because the gospel is... Um, is the is what matters. So boys and girls, you might want to write down uh, these five sub-points of, of our first point. So Paul's attitude towards Philippi... You might want to write down five terms or five phrases that tell me something about Paul's relationship to the church. I'm going to give you five terms or five phrases couched in this one verse that tell me something about Paul's relationship to the church at Philippi. What does Paul think about them? Number one. So this is under number one. You can write A, B, C, D, E. Number, but, but, but number one, Paul gives us his perspective in this term, brethren. Brethren. So five terms, phrases, tell me something about Paul's relationship to the church of Philippi. The number one is brethren. Brethren. Now the New King James translation, which is what I'm reading and preaching from, um, you actually read these words, Therefore my beloved brethren, my beloved and longed for brethren. But in the original, if you were to go back and see how Paul actually wrote it in the Greek language, what you would find is that you would find that this term brethren is actually at the first. It's priority. In the Greek language, uh, they would often emphasize words or terms, phrases and concepts by word order. They would put it at the end or at the beginning in somewhat of a priority manner. So what you would actually find as Paul writes this is that in this verse, the first thing that he writes um, is brethren. And from that, the rest of the verse is going to flow. It's as if this is the core. It's the emphasis. And from it, the, the rest are going to build as adjectives or descriptive words to identify the type of brethren that they are, or the way that I relate to that, brethren, that, that, that brother. And that this, this term brethren, it literally means, it could be translated, maybe in some of your translation it is, just brothers. It could also encompass brothers and sisters. Um, this designation is prevalent throughout the letters and no doubt in Paul's thinking. And this letter alone, just four short chapters, Paul actually uses this identifier at least six other times. And now there's no real academic reason for that, right? Because there's no requirement for that repetition. And actually, as, as intellectual and as academic as Paul is, um, academia might actually discourage the repetition. Like if it's an official uh, document, I'm sitting in English class, and how many times they said, you're too redundant, think of another word. Um, that it's actually intellectually unnecessary. Paul doesn't need, to be, doesn't need to keep saying brother, 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 if he's already, entire, uh, if he's already um, identified them at the beginning of the letter, dear brethren, or church. So it's not academic, and at the same time, it's, 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 Paul's not apathetic about the word. 
He's not, it's not an indifferent filler word, you know. Um, uh, many of us today have, have these words. It's especially in the hospital when you can't remember everybody's name. I'm working on a unit. I, I have my names, man. Uh, you know, uh, hey, man, hey, buddy, brother, um, dear, sweetie, um, these things to these patients. Um, you hear it all the time. Uh, w- one of the, the ones that I used to utilize all the time was brother, calling everyone brother. It was just somewhat of an apathetic and indifferent term, an identifier in which I could relate because I couldn't remember um, everyone's name. But Paul's not doing that here. That brother is not just an indifferent term. He's not apathetic and it's not, there's not an academic need for it. No, Paul's use of the term brethren, I, I'm going to argue, is actually aimed. There's a purpose in it. And it's affectionate. That its purpose was to engender a certain type of tenderness and affection from his readers, particularly those at Philippi. It would be like sitting before my wife with something very important to say. And she knows I know her name, you know. But to engender some type of response from her to, to some sobriety, some, something romantic, something, something sober, something emphatic. I, I, I will call it honey or babe, or sweetheart, to endear her, to call her attention, and may reutilize that throughout the conversation, that, that, that it's a, a term that cultivates, it grabs their attention. And that's what Paul's doing. In doing so, it would remind them, more than once throughout this entire level, or this entire letter, um, of, their, of their relationship to Paul and Paul's relationship to them. It would remind them of their union together and particularly their union with Christ and how it manifested itself in spiritual life together, particularly encumbered in this word in the likeness of a family. A family. Such that Paul would, would call us in other places corporately the household of God or the family of God. That all of those who have been saved by the grace of God have been adopted into what we would call the family of God. And that phrase, that terminology that Paul utilizes throughout to teach us something about the nature of the church, but also the nature of the individual and how we interact with one another, how we relate with one another. Right? Like the reality that you are born into a family regardless of your preferences or your subjective ideals and ideations. You're not there because of shared interests. You're not there because you necessarily want to be. (laughs) You know, you're there because of an objective reality between a man and a woman who brought you into this world as children and you don't get to choose boys and girls. Right? And that by, by that reality, you are what you are. And that's unchangeable. Against common belief, that's unchangeable. You don't get to exit out of the family simply because you desire to or you found a family that you think would be better, has more shared interests than you could flourish better in. Little Johnny at age 10 doesn't get the right to choose. That by entering into that, it is is helpful um, to, to, um, to understand our commitments one to another simply by virtue of being together in those identifying roles, right? Uh, fathers, you know, whether you wanted a child or not, like when that child came, responsibility was laid upon you. It's not elective, right? That God dictates the terms of your relationship to that child simply by virtue of birth into that family. You are provider, now you are protector, you are prophet, and you are priest in that home. 
You are to lead and you are to guide. You are to raise up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Why? Simply by virtue of, 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 of relationship. You, mothers, the same. Children, the same. Right? That being birthed into that family, you have a commitment to your parents, boys and girls, father and mother, to obey them in the, in, in, in the Lord. That's Ephesians chapter 6. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That being a part of a family gives us roles and responsibilities native to that relationship. And it is imperative that we understand God's, role, God's, God's truth in regard to those things. I mean, that's, that's in part, I think, what is encumbered as well in this concept of the family of God. Right? We don't elect to be into the family of God. Right? Like we are because we're birthed into that family. And as a result of being in the family, saved by the grace of God, um, there are certain commitments that are laid upon us simply by virtue of being... God is our Father. And one another as brothers and sisters. In particular, to hear that phrase, right? the term brothers and sisters, gives us this image of the wonderful picture that of a relationship between believers and that believers have with one another at its most fundamental um, at its most fundamental level, and I'm convinced that this reality is largely lost in our day, and it's largely lost even in many churches. And I think it's at least in part because the culture and the church at large has lost a biblical understanding and conviction, um, even for, also for a godly family, right? Like what you see within the Scriptures with, between the family and the church is this reciprocal dynamic that between the home and the church, that each one informs the other. Right? The, church, the church instructs and is a prophet to the family, and at the same time, the family relationships Paul utilizes to teach us something about the, the nature of the church. And when one is lost... It loses its ability to actually powerfully inform the other. I don't know which one was necessarily lost first, but at some point, um, the, the biblical ideal of the family is gone. Families now, husbands and wives, parents and children, children to one another, very commonly have very little tie and commitment to one another. The household, even among many conservatives, is viewed simply as a platform to foster individualism. Dad has his own life, mom has her own life, Johnny and Susie have their own lives. And they reconvene three or four times a week to discuss what's going on in everybody's life. And, is, and that's, that's clearly not a picture of biblical family. But at the same time, I could almost say the exact same thing about the church. In the common church now, pastors and parishioners, members and attendees have very little tie and or commitment to one another. The church, even among conservatives, Bible believers, is viewed as a platform to foster individualism. The church is merely a stage, as a place for the individual to shine in their giftedness. The pastor has his own life, the church members have their own lives, and they reconvene one to two times a week to worship God, express themselves in worship, and engage a little bit of small talk before or after the service. But neither a family nor a church um, were created for those purposes. 
to be platforms to foster or cultivate expressive individualism. They are institutions ordained by God to cultivate disciples of Christ through instruction and commitment and service to one another. And the family illustration teaches us something about the responsibility that we have to God as well as to one another. In a similar way that as children, and the family teaches us about what our relationships to our fathers and mothers are and between ourselves. And that this morning, brothers and sisters, when I say that, that means something. Brothers and sisters are relationships forged, not in, in common interests, but in the very activity of God as He directs and gives the increase. That families are gifts by God, and so is the family a gift by God. That families are not elective, and neither is the church life. That they are the result of the, the objective reality in the life and love shared by Christ to us as, as even a father and a mother um, together. And that bond that is forged in God's family is to go deeper than simply being together once a week. It's rooted in the objective reality of Christ and His work. And in it should be contained a belonging, a security, a togetherness, a commitment, and a service one to another. So when Paul uses the identifier brethren, he actually means something by it. It's not academic, nor is it apathetic. Um, it is affectionate, and it speaks something of his commitment to the church there at Philippi. He's expressing a God-given affection and commitment to them. You might ask, what in the world does a brotherly or a sisterly type of relationship look like then? And that's a question I had to ask. I think I remember years ago I preached through the family. And I preached through you know, fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, and this dynamic um, with children. But I don't think I ever preached a sermon on brothers and sisters. You don't hear much talk about that. What is their relationship one to another? What should it look like? Well, I think the rest of these, um, and probably more, these terms may give us some indication as to what the nature of this brotherhood um, is. And innately, number two, it should be, um, it should be um, described or attributed to by love. So I said, number one, the term was brethren, boys and girls. Number two, the, 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 the next term that I want to draw to your attention is beloved. Beloved. Beloved is actually used here two times to speak of the brethren. In the same verse. Paul, like it's just a little overkill, isn't it? It doesn't seem to be. Paul wants to communicate something to them. Thus he says, therefore my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand in the fa fast in the Lord, beloved. He, it's a sandwich with this idea of standing fast, he sandwiches it in this term, beloved. That the relationship that marks out their union in Christ to some extent is a, term, is, is, is a relationship of love. The relationship that he has with Philippi is not ultimately characterized, as we might think today, of as feuding brothers and sisters. Although it may happen at times, as we will even see in the next verse, between these two sisters in Christ, there is to be no perpetual sibling rivalry among them, but camaraderie and endearment. There is, there is no thought of the, this family being bound to one another um, in chattel slavery, but they are in union and communion with one another. 
There's no I'm stuck with you type of mentality and I can't wait to get out of this family. Oftentimes, brothers and sisters or siblings um, are characterized by that. And, and they are. You know why? Because, because generally speaking, when they come out of the womb, they're immature. Um, but as they grow and as they mature, they should have a right understanding of the relationship one with another. And that they should ultimately become laborers together, servers in the family, um, committing and contributing to the good of the family as well as the glory of God. That they are co-laborers and fellow laborers within this family to progress and perpetuate the mission of that family. And the same is true. And that that relationship should be characterized by a heartfelt, affectionate, and active love. And that's what the term there, beloved, indicates. It's a term of endearment. It's actually the adjective form of the Greek term, agape. MacArthur says of this word, this is, quote, the richest, the deepest, and the strongest word for love. Another brother says this love, mentioned by Paul, is deep-seated. It's self-sacrificing. It's thorough, it's intelligent, and it's purposeful. A love in which the entire personality takes part. And there are two components of this love that I would like to give you. So this would be a sub-point. That this love contains both affection and action. Both affection and action. I think that's important to note here. Why? Because in our culture, even within the church culture, um, we are extremists. (laughs) And we love to err on one side or the other. We love to take love as just solely this primary affection. It's this notion um, within the world right now that love is, is predominantly and only a feeling. You know, it's somewhat butterflies in my stomach. It's stroking another one's ego. It's about making someone feel good. And if someone makes you feel good and accepted, then they have loved you and you reciprocate that same type of love by inclusiveness. And listen, that's, that's, that's farther from the truth. That you can get. Or as far from the truth as you can get. That love is characterized. It is defined by God. And it must too submit to the truth of God. Um, and express itself accordingly. Yet at the same time it's more than just expressing itself externally. Um, it's more than fulfilling your um, external duty. It's more than simply saying I'm sorry. Saying the right terms like I love you. Or please forgive me. Saying it with the lips does not necessitate or mean that it's actually born out of a right heart. That you need proper affection and motivation, undergirding right actions in submission to the truth of God. You have to have both. Say it again. You need proper affection and motivation, undergirding right actions in submission to the truth. That affections are not enemies here, church. Now, they're not, now when they are everything, they are enemies. But God has given us this, this ability to emote and to affect and to, 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 to experience joy and love and anger and, and all of these emotions, even jealousy in a godly manner. And they are to be exhibited and expressed in this world in a panoply of ways as it comes under the right institution and submission of God. And doing it displays the very character of God. That, that, that affections when, when submitting to the truth of God and exhibited in the right way actually proclaim the truth of God. Um, so affections are not enemies when rightly um, yielded to the truth. That affection is a delight. It looks upon its object. That love looks upon its object and sees a loveliness and a worthiness in that object. And it delights in it. 
It's the same word that the Father uses of the Son in Matthew Matthew 3. You hear these words, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That God the Father delights in God the Son and even says, This is my most beloved Son, the one whom encompasses my love. And as a result of that love, I delight in Him. This is what you find all throughout the book of Philippians as well, as Paul expresses himself to the church there at Philippi. Chapter 1, verse 5, For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day from now, he thanks God for that. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work and you will complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains... And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. He says something similar in chapter 4 and verse number 15. That Paul can look at the church at Philippi with the utmost delight because of the love that God had given to him for them. Because of their progress in grace, their display of holiness, their defense of the gospel, and their labor in the kingdom. That He delights in them, not because they're in and of themselves beautiful. Because we know that on most days we're not. But because He sees in them the very character of Christ and the Son, the Father that delights in the Son. That Paul sees in them that same Son in His activity. And Paul delights in Christ in them. Thus Paul has this, this supreme affection and delight for the church that just overwhelms him with joy. And he sees them as one of the most loveliest, the most lovely of objects in this life. Why? Because they are in, when they're in Christ, they display His character and nature. And then number two, not only affection, but action. That love, rightly submitting to the truth, produces in the life of a believer a sacrificial servant Hood, selfless commitment to one another, even at the great cost of itself, in order to benefit that their beloved, their beloved. This is what we see all throughout the gospel. There is this covenantal commitment within the new covenant. As as men are united with Christ, they are also united with His body. We commune not only with Him, but but share in this life together and even share Christ together in that communion that there is a commitment that is is to be made um, one to another. And you see this all throughout the book of Philippians as well. Chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, Paul is willing to sacrifice himself, being poured out as a drink offering. Why? So that they may be more like Christ. Paul is willing to give Timothy, who is a benefit to him. Paul is willing to give Epaphroditus, who is a benefit to him. Paul is willing to give those things that are necessary, even for his profit and his good. Arguably necessary resources in his life and ministry. Paul is ready to lay those aside for the benefit of the church at Philippi. For the benefit of the church at Philippi. And no doubt the church at Philippi knew as a result of that the love that Paul had for them and thus their commitment is born out of that. Not to mention in Philippians chapter number 2 that great exemplifying um, uh, illustration of Christ Himself. 
who was willing to humble himself, become a man, lay aside rights, lay aside rights and privileges. Why? So that we might be the benefactors of it. And as a result of that love, we come to Christ freely and fully, committing ourselves, taking up our cross daily, dying to ourselves. Why? So that we may serve Him. There is a reality of nature, of natural relationships, spiritual relationships among us that are even born in that likeness. A commitment one to another because of the love expressed. They had a commitment to Paul and Paul had a commitment to them ultimately because of the gospel. But that was forged in, in, in fire to a greater extent, hardened in those oils um, of that fire as that love was, was born out in Paul's life. There's just a reality experientially that, that our commitment one to another grows in that grace and knowledge and, and in practicality as we sacrifice and live and commit ourselves one to another. I mean, you know that naturally. You know that someone who has expressed the grace to you that you don't deserve gives you a love and a delight in them willing and a willingness to sacrifice almost anything that you have that you might just spend one hour washing their feet. Why? Because of the gratitude of heart. What a great sin it is. You know, what a great sin it is to just turn your eyes to that day in and day out. You know? Just, just, just living to be served. No gratitude for what God has used others and God is doing in our lives. You know, not willing to serve. Just turning our eyes to the grace of God. Extended through the brethren who have committed themselves to us. It should produce in us the very, the very righteousness of Christ. The gratitude of heart and love and delight. It produces in us an action. And that action should be borne out. You can imagine just the effect that it had upon the slave girl. In Acts chapter 16. You can imagine the effect that Paul's commitment and love to them had on the Philippian jailer. And no doubt Euodia, no doubt Syntyche, no doubt this true yoke fellow, no doubt Clement. They had seen the labor of Paul in the gospel, not only for Christ, but in Christ for them. Because of Christ to them. That Paul's Christ uh, relationship to Christ was, 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 was vertical, but it was as much um, horizontal. That there was no individualistic type of Christianity, just me and Jesus with Paul. Paul's life was lived out in commitment to other men and other women, particularly within the church of God. Why? Because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Fathers and mothers and spiritual, um, a spiritual family together. That's the idea. Paul's love for Philippi is more than a visceral bodily reaction. It's more than a fuzzy feeling about those guys. It's more than just an inclination that these are great people. It was a love that was born in him, that bound him to them because of the cause of Christ, such that he was willing to spend and to be spent for these people who he's united to. This is the significance of the term, my beloved. And he said, I love that. I love it in Philippians. He doesn't just say beloved. It doesn't say you're well-loved among the nations. He says you're mine. In a similar way that the Father says to the Son, My beloved. It's personal. That personal pronoun changes everything. And that's what you'll see throughout the, the, the New Testament letters. But even in this, you'll see that that beloved, that that love is hashed out in both affection as well as action. And you see that in the next, in the next phrase. Number three. The next term, boys and girls, 
um, is, or the next phrase is, and longed for. He says, therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren. The only place in the New Testament where this form is used, uh, this word is here. But it derives from a word that literally means, uh, it gives the concept of an intense longing, an intense craving, a yearning, a sincere affection. One commentator says, a strong desire it speaks of, an intense craving of possession, a great affection for a deep desire and an earnest yearning for something with the implication of need. Here it describes a natural yearning of personal affection. There was within Paul such an affection for the Philippians that there was a great desire in him to be reunited for a revival of face-to-face fellowship and communion with one another. So he says in chapter 1, verse number 8, that there was this great desire in him, this longing for. Same in chapter 2, verse 26. The same was true not only of Paul, but in chapter 2, 26, the same is true of Philippi in the sending of Epaphroditus. In chapter 2, verse 26, since he was longing for you all. Verse 25, yet I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, but, but your messenger and those who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Epaphroditus is there. He's went to alleviate the concerns and the needs of the apostle himself because of the blessing that he had been to the local church there at Philippi. So Epaphroditus, the church is so committed that they send one of their leaders possibly, Epaphroditus, hundreds of miles, um, even to the point of death. And Epaphroditus gets there. He almost dies and he hears from back from Philippi that they're worried because they think he's dying. That they are, they are viscerally affected on the inside, no doubt wanting to send people to go because of the relationship that they have, wanting to guard Epaphroditus and his ministry to them and his ministry to Christ. Thus that he says he, 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 is, he is in some sense sorrowful because of the reality of their sorrow. And he longs for them to go back to them, why to minister to their needs so that they'll no longer be sorrowful, that they won't be distracted from the gospel, that they won't worry and be concerned about him. This is the ideal of the apostle. Paul's not just longing for so that they can get together, hang out and have a good time. Paul actually longs for them with this yearning because he longs to minister to them for their good. Um, There's activity. It's more than affection. And it's not necessarily in this passage here, but all throughout the New Testament, what you're going to find of the Apostle Paul is this, this, this phrase of longing for, this concept of longing for. You say, why does he long for them? He longs for them so that he can serve them. Romans chapter 1 and verse number 8. This concept can be multiplied throughout the New Testament with Paul. But in Romans 1.8, he says, first, speaking of the Romans, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. That your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom served with my spirit in the gospel of his son. That without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you. That I may impart to you some spiritual gift. So that you may be established. You get the same kind of concept, right? Stand fast. And he goes on to say that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. This is an amazing statement, really. And when you think about it, the Apostle Paul, the one who, you know, three decades earlier longed to be with the Christians so he could murder them. (laughs) 
He could bind them, take them, you know, from Damascus to, to, to Rome so that he could put them to death, so that he could stone them among, among the Jewish people because he saw this. And now he's, he's, he's totally changed, he's zealous, and he longs to be with the brethren throughout the world. Um, not to be comforted inherently in and of himself, but he knows that as a result of their sharing together in life, he, he too will be comforted. That his longing is a longing to be like Christ. It is a longing to come to serve so that they may benefit from it. He even says it later in Philippians chapter number 4. And that, he, that he is thankful that he received the gift from Philippi. But in verse 17 he says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. That in the giving and the receiving of necessity and the giving and receiving of material born out of a right heart. I know that it will be beneficial for you to serve. Not that I am inherently in need. Not that I couldn't necessarily do without. But it's not to fill my belly. It's not to be warmer at night. But the greatest, the greatest blessing that I receive from receiving Epaphroditus is the reality to know that in your sacrifice you will be made more like Christ. Rome, I want to come to you. Why? So that I can serve you, impart to you some spiritual blessing, some fruit that may abound to your account. That's why I need to come. That wrapped up in this love is more than just a mere visceral bodily reaction. But out of that right affection is born a love for these people such that they commit themselves to them for their sake, even at the cost of themselves. That this is what we are, church. When we come together, it is not a consumer-driven, entertaining type of service. I am not an entertainer. I mean, and, and this is not a platform for our individualism. When we come here on the Lord's Day, it is primarily to worship God. The triune being of all of creation, manifesting Himself through Christ... 2,000 years ago, the plan of God throughout the ages to bring to Himself a people for Himself out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, truly changing them in the inner man. And part of that worship not only happens in the preaching and in the worship or in the songs and in the prayer, but it happens in the service of God one to another. You are here to serve, not to be served. And that one of the greatest ways you will be served by God will be in the service of God to others. It will be in committing yourself sacrificially, not only here and now, but throughout all the week. It will be in, 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 in naturally speaking, you know, one of the best things you know, for us to do is, 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 is to serve. I'm thinking of even my own children, you know, as I, as I try to disciple them and instruct them and, and even in life, it almost seems like to them on many days the most profitable thing is to do their own thing. But they need to learn and understand that we are here not to be served, but to serve. And that in that service, they are being served by God in the greatest capacity to mature them into the men and the women that they ought to be. That this is participatory. That, I, that, that, that there is giving and there is receiving. And there, is, there should be looking, not only in this day, but throughout all of life and throughout um, the years to come. 
you know, opportunity for service, that that will be one of the best ways, the primary ways that God actually um, serves you and brings fruit abounding um, to your account. So I have just a tiny, a tiny bit of application. You know, men and women, when you're, you're bringing your children to church, teach them that they are here not for themselves. While that may be a beneficial and a delightful thing to, to be among their friends, at the various earliest stages, recognize you are here to serve. You know, here in a moment, we'll have a fellowship dinner. You know, it, and as much as I delight in the joy of having the children play outside, I think how much more beneficial would it be that when time gets together, and I see it, you know, from time to time, you know, just, just them serving and bringing the chairs out, serving in the capacity, serving by being respectful to one another, recognizing even within the services, other people trying to hear the Word of God. It's, it's a service to them to try to maintain, a, you know, a demeanor of, of reverence and soberness, yet at the same time, joy and delight. And while there's grace extended, yes, because we are little ones, at the very earliest of stages, um, we should be teaching our children to serve and fruit will abound to their count if they learn at a very early age to have a servant's heart. That this is how we grow. That we grow by service to one another. And I grow week in and week out by studying the Word of God and serving you. Fruit abounds to my account. You know, spiritually speaking, because of the service that God has given me to you. And I would, and I would, and I long for you to benefit from that as well. I long for you to take up, you know, the discipleship in your homes and your families, taking your children through family worship. Not only because I think that it's a, a a godly thing to do, but men, it will grow you as you serve your family. Ladies, you will be different women at the end of the year if you're laboring in the Word for your children. If you're sacrificing those moments for the service of others because they're laying aside your desires, your rights, your privileges, things that aren't inherently evil, but even, but even arguably good, laying those aside for the service of your children, and those children see that, the, the, the very display of Christ through your servant's attitudes and the joy that you have to serve them, how, how influential and powerful that is as the, as, the, as the character of God is displayed in your demeanor. Let us, Paul, Paul longed to serve. Paul longed to lay aside certain things. He longed for them in more than a visceral reaction. He longed to serve. He longed to see. He longed to alleviate their concerns. Number four, he says, my joy. We could probably put four and five together because Paul does. He says, therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I love that. Literally, my joy, that personal pronoun again, just grips it and makes it personal. Paul says that when I think about you, when I labor with you, like I look at you, like he doesn't just say you bring me joy. He personalizes it in such say that you are my joy. He says something similar in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. For what is our hope or joy, the crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. 1 Thessalonians 3.6, he goes on to just expound upon that more. As he sends Timothy, or Timothy comes to him from them. 
And he says that Timothy brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. See that longing? Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks we can render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Do you see the theme again? Stand fast, longing to come. Why? So that we can perfect what's lacking in your faith. And it just brings me the utmost joy such that I rejoice in you. Paul is saying that your perseverance, your prospering um, Thessalonica, your progress in the gospel, like it's just a source of my of blessing to me. You know, it's akin to seeing your family, your children. You know, John would say, right? Like, it's, it's like see, one of his greatest joys and blessings was to see his children walking in the truth. It's just a source of blessing and a source of encouragement and a source of, 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 of full spiritual health. It just does something for the Apostle Paul. It causes him to exalt in Christ. It leads to a magnification of, of Jesus Christ because of what, of what Christ is accomplishing in them. That Paul looked at the church at Philippi and, and, and his perspective was that in their progress of faith, in their labor for Christ, um, he, it was a joy to him, you know. I just say again, just a little piece of application, and even anecdotally, like it is one of my greatest joys to see you labor in Christ. You know? Now, joy doesn't preclude difficulty. Joy doesn't mean that it's a, it's a rosy day seven days a week. It doesn't preclude um, conflict. It doesn't mean those things. I mean, it's somewhat of a temperament even below um, the external man. That man can rejoice in God and, and being upon the tempest of the sea. That below and underneath there's a peace of God that rests in him even, uh, even in the midst of the boat. Such that you can trust God and, and just have the utmost joy that on the hardest of days, one of the, source, the greatest sources of my joy in Christ is you, church. As you labor for the gospel. As I think about how you go out, some of you, you know, two times a week and, and evangelize the lost because of God birthed that in you. As I think about you laboring men in your homes, discipling your children, I want you to know that I often give thanks to God for that. It is the very display of Christ. It's not to say that we're perfect. It's not to say that, that we're pristine. Um, but, but even in that, that imperfectness, even in that lack of pristineness, it just it brings me joy. That as we can gather together with our difficulty, as we will a Euodian Asenthaki next week, we can gather together and Christ's grace just reigns forth in the forgiveness and the reconciliation, even in the midst of our difficulties and our, dis and our, and our differences. You know, And I wouldn't trade that for a conflict-free conflict church a uh, 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 hundred times. You know, like If it was offered a conflict-free church... You know, I, I, would, I would not take it. Why? Because it is in those moments. It's in moments like that in the family. Like when you have, you have usurped authority or you have, you have done something wrong or you have offended even your child. It's in some of those moments that you see Christ most honored and glorified when she comes to you or he comes to you or you go to him. Why? Because of the offense that you've made and you both there rest in the work of Christ and your relationship is all the stronger. It's been fostered and strengthened by Christ Himself because you've acted by faith. Even this week, 
You know, in weeks past, in home life, as well as in church life, you know, as you work through these difficulties and these differences and these and these 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 potential um, these potential episodes of disunity, it has been my joy to see Christ work in it all. You know, to see Him magnified and glorified and exalted in all of it. It's a joy, church. Number five, and finally, He says, "My joy and crown." Crown. Um, this isn't a crown such as a king would wear. This is the crown that with the wreath, that corruptible wreath that Paul talks about in First Corinthians nine and verse twenty-five, and that, that is gifted to those that are in the Greek games. Paul is saying what he said of the of, of Thessalonians in First Thessalonians two nineteen and twenty. We don't have time to go there, but I would encourage you if you want to look on that more. Um, but also in Philippians chapter two verse sixteen, so that in the day of Christ he says. I will have reason to glory, to rejoice, to boast, because I did not run or toil in vain. And the idea is the same there. Paul actually looked, at, again, personal pronoun, that my applies to both, my joy and my crown. It could be reproduced there. Um, and the idea is this. I'm going to read to you a quote by another faithful man. If you, if you, quote, if you Philippians continue, this is what he's saying. If you Philippians continue in the path of obedience... So that Christ is formed in you to the extent that you shine His lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. When the Lord Jesus comes, I will not be found as one who ran, but not crowned. As one who has nothing to show for all my endeavors but sore muscles. O you Philippians, continue to be monuments of the power of the gospel and practical holiness in the last day. I will, if that's the case, I will wear the victor's crown. As a minister who used, who was used by God to realize the great end of the ministry. What he's saying is, is that he's saying that you, Philippi, you brothers and sisters, you, Euodia, you, Syntyche, you, true yoke fellow, you are the designation, the evident manifestation that I ran well. He's saying that the proof of the effectiveness of my ministry will be the spiritual maturity of the believers that he's invested himself in. And I know that kind of goes against uh, the grain of what we think. You know, there is theologically, technically, doctrinally, um, this reality that whether or not um, God gives us fruit, we should labor hard, right? But at the same time, it's a foreign concept to the apostle that if he labors in faithfulness, that God will not bless in some capacity. Paul hung on to the reality that the gospel produces something in the life of of unbelievers as well as believers. It brings men to Christ and it cultivates sanctification in those that are in him. And Paul was laboring with Philippi for a reason. Not as an individual only vertically to honor Christ, but to honor Christ and producing in them the type of men and women that they would be. And Paul said it would be a crown of victory upon my head when I stand before Christ and you're behind them or you're behind me and you ran well. That Paul's ministry, um, again, was not just unilaterally vertical in the isolated sense. Paul's ministry was wrapped up in the people of God such that he labored with with efficiency and diligence for an effective ministry to be produced in the lives of those believers. It would be akin to saying, you know, like I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to do with my kids and if they go their way, fine. What a horrible type of mentality. 
You know, I'm laboring with my kids for I know that I believe in sovereign grace. I believe God um, is the one that saves. I believe if, if they will be born again, God will regenerate the heart. Yet at the same time, I'm laboring with a diligence of discipline and nurture and the admonition of the Lord as imperfect as I can um, for, 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 God, for, for God to accomplish a work through that. I'm expecting it. I'm seeking God in that daily. And it's the same with you, church. That we are to commit ourselves one to another out of the love that is born in our hearts to be an effective agent in the lives of one another. One another. And I know that Paul is unique here as an apostle to this church. Um, yet at the same time, I think that this may not in the same details, but in some reality should be the same um, for all of us. One writer writes, other Christians were to, were to him the objects of his pastoral concern, his joy and crown. When Paul thus uses these words, he has in mind fixed on that day of Christ and are gathering together to him. It is in part Paul's love for Christian friends that he longs for them to be ready and acceptable to the Christ on that day, the day of his return. To Paul, it is a victory to see them accepted before the throne. And at the same time, the proper garland of one who is banqueting with the king of kings and his chosen guests. Thus, in part, his zealous and affectionate concern for them is explained. He sees them in light of Calvary, where they were purchased. And of the coming by which they will be gathered into glory. J.A. Montier writes. Alexander McLaren writes these words. The crown of victory laid upon the locks of a faithful teacher. Is the character of those of whom he saw. And this can be true of us all church. Our crown, our victory as faithful believers. Our joy will be wrapped up in the character of those that we have labored after in this life. Are you investing your lives in the lives of your brothers? Are you, do you see your commitment to Christ fleshed out in the life of the local assembly, the gathering of God's people? Did you come this morning to serve or to be served? Did you come this morning to receive thinking that fruit would abound as I received? Or do you recognize that, that fruit, the fruit that I have to give you from this sermon as you consume it does, will, not, uh, will not compare to that fruit that you will receive as these truths are lived out in your life this week? That that's where these truths are made alive. Christ comes alongside in fellowships with you and the power of His resurrection as well as in the fellowship of His sufferings. Are you investing your lives in the lives of others and brothers and sisters? Um, well, you know, Paul, why in the world would you even bother with Euodia and Syntyche? You know? To be of the same mind of the Lord. Why would you employ the church? Why would you call on this true companion and Clement, the other fellow workers? Like, why is it that important? It doesn't seem like that big of a deal, really. They'll figure it out on their own. No, no. Disunity is an attack upon the gospel. And in the power of the gospel, as he has converted me and brought me into relationship, not only with himself, but with others, I have a responsibility to you, Odia. I have a responsibility to Syntyche. And Paul wants the church at Philippi to know, too, that they, too, have a responsibility to one another. To foster and to cultivate the gospel of Christ in a life that is worthy, a life that is worthy of the manner of the gospel, Philippians chapter one twenty seven. That, that that Paul's perspective is that the church matters. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to be committed one to another, not simply because of our shared interests and our personalities kind of click, um, but because we're born into this same family. And I urge you. I'm in that same capacity to engage in the service because I long to see you 
stand before Christ with a crown and joy upon your head um, because of the labor that you've endeavored for others. I mean, next week we will see that hashed out. We will see that commitment that Paul has to Euodia, that Paul has to Syntyche. And, and, and as you read the New Testament, all of the churches that he's a part of, and particular people, and how he encourages them too, that this isn't just apostolic an endeavor. But Paul is encouraging and instructing them, one another, to be invested in one another's lives, sharpening each other, preparing each other for that great day. That's what we're doing this morning. As we engage in the service of God, we are sharpening our brothers and sisters to prepare them for that great day. Now that's not to say that, that you know, we are to idolize the church in such a capacity that we cast off every single thing else and, and give our lives to the church like in the same way that Paul did. Um, but it is to say that there is some level of commitment as to us as all believers that we should have to the people of God and it should manifest itself in some way. You can't be this to everyone, but you can be this to someone. And everyone can't be this to you, so don't get upset when they're not, but someone can be this to you. Um, and I pray that that is a reality in all of the lives of our church. In, the same way, in a similar way as with our family and homes. You recognize those responsibilities, you embrace those. And know this, that, that what God requires of us in the home does not conflict with what God requires of us in the church and that the two can live and dwell together in a balanced way that is honoring and glorifying to God and actually feeding one another in those, in those um, reciprocal dynamics. As you live out family life, it enriches um, your, your life in the church. And as you live out church life, um, it enriches your family. This is what we want. Both to feed and foster and cultivate godliness in one another and the power of the gospel to present to a lost and a dying world. Um, and that's the danger, right? An offense to the gospel and to impede the effectiveness of it. Now these Euodian Syntyche who labored with him in the gospel don't labor now as much. Um, and the power and witness of Christ in the church is lost because of the disunity. Paul, what are we going to do about that? Um, we'll learn it next week. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for texts like these. Father, you always just, you always just enamor me by your ability um, to continue to reveal truth in the most unlikely of places. Father, a verse that we've probably read over seemingly glossed over a hundred times. You just, you just open, wide, you just wide open. You just, you just busts out of the dam like a, like a flash of water. Father, you have the ability through, through the work of your son and the power of your spirit just to enrich our lives by truth and we, and we revel in that. And we pray, Father, um, that you would not restrain it. We pray that you'd give us a hunger and a thirst after righteousness, Father. We just thank that you would enamor our souls of the beauty and the delight of Jesus Christ um, such that we would continue to uncover that great treasure, Father, that's hidden in the field and that we would just find more and more and more and more. Father, it would change our family lives. It would change me as a father and as a pastor and as a husband and as a friend, Father, as a brother in Christ and that all the world would know that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. Father, not only by the word um, that we propagate 
or proclaim, but also by the word that our lives manifest. Father, give us a love for one another. Your word is clear. Christ's word is crystal clear. How will they know that you are my disciples? By the love that you have for one another. Not a mere affection, but the activity of the saint as he commits himself to the benefit of the other. That he may be prepared on that great day to stand before Christ in all of Christ's righteousness. With works in tandem because of what God accomplished in and through them. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the blessing of service. I thank you, Father, that you've made them my joy. And I pray that one day you will make them my crown. Not that I can glory or boast in my own hands or any work of these feet, Father, but that I may boast in Christ because you are worthy of us all. So, Father, accomplish that through your Son, by your Spirit, in this people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing. Number 353 of Church Arise. Number 353. Oh, church, arise. Somewhat of a call to action.